I want to join with Stan in saying, Santa Claus, wait. The turkey has not yet been served. Uh, I am, I guess, probably among the few that my favorite holiday of the year is Thanksgiving. Has, has been all of my life. Uh, Thanksgiving for me was always going out my grandparents' house uh, where I got to be with all of my cousins. There would be anywhere from 30 to 40 to 50 of us there. Uh, my dad was the oldest of eight children. I'm the oldest of about 26 grandchildren. So you can imagine once all of our wives and husbands and kids all got together, it was a small church. And uh, we had just a blast. Uh, the food was fantastic. We would play football afterwards. We would then go home and watch the Dallas Cowboys on Thursday afternoon. Boy, I loved Thanksgiving. The holiday. I don't know that I was real good, though, at expressing thanks. Was I thankful? Yes. Did I give thanks? A little but not as much as I should have. And, and I've kind of been more convicted, and I appreciated staying talking about that. It's Thanksgiving that's important. Uh, recently, I was reminded that there were 10 lepers cleansed by Jesus, and I've heard all of my life that only one was thankful. But it was pointed out that I'm pretty sure all 10 were thankful, but only one said thank you. And so the question is not, are you thankful? The question, do you say thank you? Now, let me begin by just correcting my errors. Thank you. Thank you for being the Hendersonville Church of Christ. Thank you for your generosity. As Mike challenged us, 200,000 is a lot. Let me just remind you that last year, Blake, wasn't it 240-something thousand that we gave? We can give that easily. Let's join together and do it so that we go into the new year just really in a good place. I'm thankful for all these ministries. Wow! Children's ministries continuing to grow, continuing to make changes. You'll see some of those changes very soon. I mean, things that you'll go, wow, look at this. This is fantastic. And then Brian Shepherd in the counseling ministry. Boy, I've been keeping up with that. And they're going to have an open house soon. And boy, it looks fantastic over there. And, and the list, y'all, just goes on and on of everything that I'm so thankful for. So for those of you who are involved in it, thank you. Here's a big thank you for me. I am thankful that John Michael Richardson defended his dissertation this last week. And it's now Dr. Richardson. Y'all join me. Ah. Boy, what an accomplishment. I am so grateful for that. I went across Wednesday morning. I said, John, I'm hurting up here. And boy, he took care of it and it was great. Good to have a doctor in the house now. But seriously, a long journey for him and, and a congratulation is in order. I'm thankful that June and I can be a part of this church. Uh, I, I just want to express thanks on behalf of all of our staff for letting us be a part of this family. We are truly blessed and grateful for that. Uh, we have so much to be thankful for. And, and I hope that this week, as you enter into a week of Thanksgiving, that you'll say it, not just be thankful, but actually say thankful to those that have blessed your lives. In the book of 1 Kings, there's a story that 
at times I can relate to. Not that I am anywhere near as important or as uh, essential to the kingdom of God as Elijah was at the time. But I can relate to some of his feelings. And I suspect you can too. This is from 1 Kings 19.10. And Elijah's praying to God. And I want you to notice what he says. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. There are times in our lives where I suspect you, like Elijah, have thought, man, I'm the only one left. Uh, We used to have a a, a saying in the office at the church I was at beforehand. The secretary and I would say, the whole world has gone crazy, and the only ones left sane are you and me, and I'm beginning to worry about you, you know. And, And that was just a constant joke that we had in the office. And you know, you see that, and you think, what in the world had happened? I mean, how did they go from there to there from here? I mean, this is God as he's calling Moses up to the same mountain Elijah is on, okay? They're on the same mountain, Mount Sinai. And here's some 500 years earlier, and and God comes down to Moses and he says, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then the next two verses, some of the most incredible verses in all the Bible, as he says, now if you obey me fully, keep my covenant from all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And then look, although the whole earth is mine, you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And boy, they started well. I mean, they went and they took the promised land and Joshua called them all together and he said, boy, God has now planted us in that land. And notice, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders that outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And then you got a period up there. And when you come to that period, you know that there's a word that comes after this. And that word is however. You see, Israel would soon begin to forget God. Israel would soon begin to turn away from the covenant. Disobey his commands. Israel, who was God's possession, a priesthood of believers, a holy nation, would begin to move away from that. And, and, of course, over a period of 500 years, there were moments of glory. Of course there was, under David especially. But it wasn't long after that that the nation was split in two. And the next thing you know, Israel in the north is just going off in a horrible direction. And by the time Elijah comes along, I mean, in Israel, you've got people who are now turning to Baal and turning to Asherah. Baal is the male god of the Canaanites. Asherah is his wife, the female god of the Canaanites. And and Israel's abandoning their god for that god. There's a king on the throne by the name of Ahab, one of the worst kings that ever ruled over Israel. And his wife was a lady by the name of Jezebel. Just to show you how bad she was, are there any ladies in here named Jezebel? 
right? None of us ever had kids. And, and look at that little girl. I think, I'll, I think I'll name her Jezebel, right? I mean, we just don't name our kids Jezebel because of just the kind of woman she was. And Elijah was born during that time, became a prophet of God, and he began to look around and he's like, wow. And so he called Israel together. And the elders of Israel all came to Mount Carmel there up in the north, and, and, and Elijah challenged them. One of the most incredible statements in all of Scripture. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if by all is God, then follow Him. You've got to make a decision. Who are you going to follow? And I don't know if you remember the story. He said, let's have a, have a contest. Uh, each of us will build altars. The, God, the prophets of Baal and Asheroth, 950 in all. You build your altar. I'll build an altar to the Lord. And then we'll ask our gods to set fire to the sacrifice. That's the challenge. And in the book of 1 Kings, you have all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah. And, and boy, they build their altar and they kill the the, the bull, and they place it on there, and they begin to pray, and they begin to dance. They begin to cut themselves with rocks. Elijah began to torment them a little bit. And he just shout a little louder. He may be asleep. Maybe he's going on a journey. You know, who knows where Abal is? And Elijah actually says some even tougher things in the Hebrew. You can ask Stan, he'll tell you what those are. I mean, it was pretty, pretty tough language. And, of course, nothing happened. And then Elijah built an altar to the Lord, and it was a time of incredible famine. And so they even took water and poured all over the sacrifice and the wood and all around the altar. And then Elijah just basically said, God, if you're God, show yourself. And of course, the fire came down. And Israel said, Yahweh is God. But the problem is Jezebel did. And Jezebel had a little bit more power than what Elijah thought, and Jezebel sends word because what, what Elijah ended up doing was slaughtering all 950 prophets. I mean, he killed them all right there. He said, I'm going to take out the prophets of Baal and of Asherah, and Jezebel, let's see how powerful your gods are then. And Jezebel, of course, sent word to him and said, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, you're not dead. And the man who had won the great victory took off running and ran all the way to Sinai, y'all. I mean, all the way from northern Israel, all the way through Judah, all the way through the desert of the Negev, all the way down into the Sinai Peninsula to Horeb, Mount Sinai. And he gets there and, and, and complains. He says, God, I'm the only one left. It's just me. And, 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 of course, there's a lot more to the story than that. But one of the things that God wanted Elijah to know is, no, it's not. First of all, I'm still here, and that's enough. But it's not just that I'm still here, but 7,000 of Israel have not yet bowed their knees to Baal or kissed his image. You're not the only one. Now, why is that important? Well... A couple of weeks ago, John Micah preached a, a great sermon having to do with how do we create space in our lives for the Holy Spirit to act? 
that's one of the things that John's been working on really hard, both in leadership training as well as, as in family life, is how do you create what he calls, or what history has called a rule of life? How do you do that? How do you make space in your life for God to do what God needs to do? Bring you to maturity, as Barry talked about it during communion. Well, another question needs to be asked that follows on the heels of that one. As Christians, where do we go when it seems like the whole world is either against us or being torn apart around us? I don't know if you feel that. I do. I mean, I I get up in the morning, I I open my, my phone, I immediately bring up the news, and I go, are you serious? I mean, how many mass shootings can there be in America? It's now almost every day. We're afraid to go to parades. Why? Because somebody's going to drive right through it and run you over. Police officers training in California, and a guy decides, I'm going to take them out. Now, if that's the case, I don't know. I just know that that was a suspicion. I mean, guns in our schools? I mean, we look at the world around us and we go, what's happened to America? Not less what's happened to the world. And what God keeps calling us back to is something fascinating. John talked about the importance of Bible study, Scripture, prayer, silence, fasting, meditation. So many things that we do inside in order to bring our lives in line with God. But there's another aspect that God has called us to that also is so very, very important. It's one that you probably have never heard of, so I want to introduce it to you. And here's what it's called, the church. I think sometimes we just don't realize. We're we're, we're almost like Elijah, and we look and we're like, man, alive, what's happening to the world? And God whispers in our ear, look around on Sunday morning. There's still 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And so as we've been talking about this great battle that we've been in, and, and one of the enemies we have is the world, how do we be in the world but not of the world? And the answer is real simple, by being in the church. God has collected a group of people. And they come together, and together they accomplish what God cannot do through one person, but can do through a group of people. Peter, going all the way back to Exodus, to Moses up on Mount Sinai, says, listen folks, you need to be reminded who you are. You now are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation's God's special possession. Do you remember going out to grandmothers and granddads and walking in? Maybe grandmother coming up to you. Grandmother's favorite words for all of us was honey. That was grandmother. She always called us honey. And we'd go in, hey, grandmother. And she'd say, hey, honey. And she'd give us a big hug. I remember going off to Freed Hardman. And I went to see her and walked in. Hey, grandmother. And she went over to a cabinet and opened that cabinet up. And out of that cabinet was a quart fruit jar. And in that quart fruit jar was every nickel, penny, dime, quarter that grandmother had collected for I don't know how long. And she said, honey, I want you to take this and I want you to buy you a Coca-Cola. may have been a moon pie. You know, you go and you buy something that you like. And every time I'd go back, there'd be another quart fruit jar. You know, I mean, 
we grandchildren were special. We Christians are special, and we need to be reminded of that. And we need to be reminded that we can't win this war alone. Jesus, when he was brought before Pontius Pilate, he said, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my, my, my servants would fight. And he's talking about fighting with swords. You know, Peter had pulled that sword out in Gethsemane just a few minutes earlier, and he said, put it up. That's not the way we fight. Instead, Paul says, yeah, we're in the world, but we don't wage war as the world does. We don't use tanks. We don't use artillery. We don't use, I mean, how many of us would have ever thought that the day would come when the most effective weapon of war is a drone, right? And yet, boy, we're realizing it now. That's not the way we fight. We fight, Paul says, with weapons that literally demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, beginning first with ourselves. It always has to begin right here. And none of us ever get completely there, but we try to bring more and more of our thoughts captive to Jesus and then turn to others and, and invite them to do the same thing. And I love this text out of Ephesians chapter 3 where he says God's intent was that now through the church. And look at what he calls the church. The manifold wisdom of God that he should be known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished. God says, listen, the intention was always through my son Jesus the Messiah to create a body of people called the church. The word itself comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. That E-K at the beginning, and by the way, nearly all of our English letters come from Greek letters. But that E-K at the very beginning has been turned into an E-X in English. And if you look all around us, you see the signs? E-X, ek. Kalia means to be called out. Here is to go out. And, and the point simply being is that in that world of that time, people would be called out for meetings in Greek cities in order to make decisions. But when God came along, when the Holy Spirit came along, especially in the preaching of Paul, they took this ordinary Greek word and they gave it a profound meaning because it's just not that we're calling people out into assembly, but we're calling people out of the world to become a counterculture to the world. Why do we need the church? The church gets a bad rap oftentimes. And one of the things we need to understand is that, yes, the church is full of people who fall short. I tell people that the church is a spiritual hospital. And it's a place where sick people go. Can you imagine going to the hospital over here at Hendersonville, walking in and going, ooh, I can't stay here. There's sick folks here. Of course there's sick folks there. That's why you have a hospital. Who wants a hospital with no sick people? And brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ is a spiritual hospital. And so when people tell you the church has hypocrites in it, yes, it does. I'm among them. Can I just go ahead and confess that? You see, a hypocrite is someone who tries to be more than he is. 
I'm the first to admit, you know, one of the great challenges of being a preacher is they tell you, don't get up and preach it if you can't do it. If that was the case, I'd never preach. There's tons of stuff I can't do. But I know what God is constantly calling me to. And so if someone says the church has hypocrites, simply agree with them. Yes, it does. But they're hypocrites who are trying to overcome their hypocrisy. The church has people that are messed up. It does. I'm among them. I mean, I'm messed up. You're messed up. We're all messed up. The church sometimes appoints leaders that are not the best people in the world. Y'all know that the church appoints faulty leaders every single solitary time. I had a sister in Christ one time said to me, I've never been at a church that had qualified elders. That's what she said to me. And I said, I have been at tons of them. Because you see, the difference between you and me is you see qualifications as being perfection, and I know that doesn't exist. Folks, we come together as sinners redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, uniting our strengths to help overcome our weaknesses with a common purpose, and we will always be messed up. Always. I used to think that the church at Corinth was just absolutely the worst church of the New Testament. Go read the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. They were messed up everywhere. Until I preached through it and realized it's not a messed up church, it's every church. That's why God gave us the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Because he knew we needed hope. I read of people like Abraham, and I want to just put Abraham up on a pedestal until I turn to uh, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be studying that in our class this morning, here in the auditorium. And in Genesis 12, God says, listen, I, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless those that bless you, and I'm going to curse those that curse you. And the very next story is Abram going down to Egypt with his wife Sarai and turning to her and saying, you need to lie about our relationship. You tell everybody you're, sis you're my sister, otherwise they're going to kill me. And you look at him and go, that's who God chose? Yeah. And, and that gives me hope. Because if God could take a liar like Abram, who is willing to sacrifice his own wife to, to save his life, maybe God could use me and you. And so why do we need the church? Let me tell you just real quickly why. Number one, we're a church of deep community, deep relationship ties and a culture of individualism and isolation. Our world has changed. My mom and dad got married, moved next door to my grandparents. My brother got married, moved next door to my parents. My sister got married and moved next door to my parents. June and I got married and moved as far away from our parents as we could. <laughs> Primarily because of the call of ministry. Mother used to tell me that the greatest regret she had in me becoming a preacher would be that I'd move far, far away. When I came to Nashville 32 years ago, she said, I'll never see you again. Of course, we did. It's just four hours. You know, I've got a son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren now that are eight hours away. And, of course, I wanted to say to my mother, you know, there's something called airplanes, you know. But mother, you know, was like, no, nah, I ain't getting on an airplane. You know, we live in a world where we've scattered. I mean, families, especially in an agrarian culture, oftentimes live very close together. 
Now our, our kids are scattered all over the United States and maybe even around the world. And so we need more than anything in the world a community of deep relationships. And can I just tell you that we have that here at this church? I love y'all. I can't call love you by name, but I still love you. My dad had like 96 first cousins in his family, huge family. And I used to say, Dad, can you call all, all of them by name? He said, I couldn't even recognize some of them if they walked into the house. He said, we've just been scattered everywhere. I can relate to that. But y'all are my family, mine and June's. I mean, we've got family, sure. But boy, y'all are the people who are special. You're my mothers, my fathers. You're, you're, you're some of you grandparents, some of you are my brothers and sisters, some perhaps even, I like to say, children. I did a funeral Friday and I did another funeral yesterday. One for a member here, one for a member from Northside. They're people I love. They're people I've shared life with. They're people that their kids are friends and loved ones. It's who we are. Now, did I ever fight with my brother? Yeah. Did me and my sister ever have an argument? Yes. And sometimes, do I have to ask John Micah to go back to his room and let me stay in my room? Yes. Right, John? You know? I mean, sometimes we have to do that. You know, I, I've known John, John now for over 20, almost 25 years. It's getting close. And, and, and I love him as a brother. I really do. But brothers sometimes disagree. And that's okay. Because we're in this battle together. Hebrew writer said of Jesus, he's not ashamed. I mean, one of the most amazing things, he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I mean, Jesus looks at us and says, little brother and little sister, yes. Because that's what we are. Not perfect. Sometimes disappointing to him. But that's who we are. Number two, the church is a community of holiness and a culture of hedonism. We're holy? <laughs> Need to understand what the Bible means by that. I mean, I mean, Paul, for instance, in 1 Peter, excuse me, Peter in 1 Peter 1.15 will say, you need to be holy. Why? Because God's holy. But you turn over to 1 Corinthians and he says to the church at Corinth, holy, sanctified, set apart. And then he says, and then called to be holy. What does that mean? It means God has made you holy in your baptism. Now he's calling you to become what he already sees you as being. So you've got to realize those two aspects of holiness. Number three, the church is a community of order and a culture of disorder. John Micah talked about the rule of life a couple of weeks ago. You turn to scripture and you have a rule of church. I mean, here's Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, and he says, listen, I'm writing this to you, these instructions, so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. In fact, all through the epistles, through the letters of the New Testament, you've got God's prophets and apostles saying, listen, there's a way to live your life. Here's how you need to live in your family. Here's how you need to live in the church. Here's how you need to live individually before God. I know there are people that hate rules, Okay. But let me just tell you, if we lived in a world without rules, we would come to love rules. Because you take away all the rules, and I promise you, we would not like the world we live in. I mean, rules are God's way of saying, here's the way I created you, and here's the way I'm calling upon you to live. 
And then the last one is the church is a community of hope and a culture of hopelessness. Paul would say this in Romans 8. He would say, listen, this resurrection that God has promised, notice this redemption of our bodies there right before verse 24. He says, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we have not yet seen, we wait for it patiently. Let me tell you how those two families yesterday and Friday made it through the day. As they, as they sat there and they said goodbye to a loved one, let me tell you how they made it through the day. They made it through the day because their loved one had hope and had obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've preached funerals where there's no hope. People ask me sometimes, how do you preach funerals? Funerals with hope, they're easy. Funerals without hope are just discouraging. Brothers and sisters, I thank God for the church. For the church planted here in Hendersonville, Tennessee. For the churches of God scattered throughout the world. I'm grateful for any, every, and, uh, every one of them. Perfect, not until eternity, but moving toward it. And if you're not a member of the church of Jesus Christ, that's what God calls you to. And it all begins with a marvelous gift called amazing grace. If you need to accept it, why don't you do that right now as we stand and sing.